Okay, we are actually right in the middle of this great big long one, number 149, which Swamiji described as the following words were among the last advice that Master gave to the monks. And I actually numbered the points, and there are like 13 of them, I think, maybe more. 13 points, and so this is number six. And it was wine, sex, and money. And for some reason, I decided to start at the end, and I talked about money, as I recall. At least that's what I wrote down here. So I still have the other two. I'm just going to read it again, since we're still on it. Wine, sex, and money. These are the three great delusions. Don't be trapped by them. Some of you are weak. I know, but don't be discouraged. Meditate regularly, and you will find a joy inside that is real. You will then taste something you can compare to sense pleasures. That comparison will automatically make you want to forsake your sorrow-producing bad habits. The best way to overcome temptation is to have something more fulfilling to compare it with. Um, I'm going to read the next one, which is also about sexuality, and then I'll talk about that. Um, Sex seems pleasant to you now. But when you discover the joy of real inner union, you will see how much more wonderful that is. This union can be achieved physically also by what is known in yoga as kachari mudra, touching the tip of the tongue to nerves in the nasal passage or to the uvula uvula at the back of the mouth. And then there's a little footnote here. It isn't possible, unfortunately, to explain this esoteric technique of kachari mudra here. I hope it will suffice simply to allude to it. Um, So I'll deal with wine and intoxicants in a minute, but I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about sexuality. Um, There's an interesting uh, statement elsewhere and something else that uh, was written, and I don't even remember it clearly. But it was talking about how the sexual impulse is the beginning of all delusion. It was actually an interesting comment because it's the force that just pushes you outside of yourself right away, more than any other impulse. It pushes you outside of yourself, and then once you start into that reality, you just start reaching out. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot um, in terms of Swami's conversation about soulmates. And... Uh, his book, I, I talked about some of this at Spiritual Renewal Week, and I don't know, I, I do my best to forget what I've said, but I know that I, I touched on this, but I don't remember how far I went. The, that last book that Swami wrote, Love Perfected, Life Divine, which was the rewrite of Marie Corelli's romantic novel about this woman and her meeting of her soulmate, and then all of the lives they had together, and it's a, it's a marvelous book. Marie Corelli's book is very entertaining, Swami's is better because Marie Corelli took the idea of soulmates and basically just took human romance and um, inflated it, whereas Swami just took it to a completely other reality. But still, she had a lot that was interesting. Um, Swamiji would talk about the idea of soulmates on, uh, every so often, and he said Master himself talked about it once. And he talked about it in the context of, the, of his commentary on the Bible, And he was talking about the passage, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And that is often spoken of as a a biblical justification for never allowing divorce. 
And Master was completely um, dismissed that as, a, as having no relevance at all. That he said many marriages, as he said, are nothing more than a bow tie and a nice shade of lipstick. <laughs> he said it's not really a soul union of any kind. And God is not, I mean, he didn't say this, but it was not really joined by God. It may have been sanctified by a priest, but that doesn't mean it was joined by God. It was just a, a more or less superficial connection. But he then went on to say in that particular passage that just like everything else in creation, the human so soul is also dual. And that there is, every, every soul has an opposite, a complementary is a better way to say it. And before we attain uh, complete liberation, those two halves come together. And, but Master went on to say, um, it, it, you know, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with romance, especially not with sexuality. By definition, because sexuality is a physical compulsion. And, you know, in the astral world, it doesn't even exist. Which is why one of my friends said, how could they call it heaven? <laughs> but that seemed a rather small perspective, so I didn't bother to respond. But uh, you can't, if you're talking about soul union for God realization, gender is forgotten, physical compulsions are forgotten. This is just not what we're talking about. We're talking about something so subtle on, on such a level. Master said, um, your, your, your soulmate could be on another planet and you could just have that um, match come in vision. You know, you don't even have to be present. I mean, there's also the thought, can, do you have to both be liberated at the same time? Can one, one be liberated before? There's lots of questions, but Master didn't answer any of them, Swami said, because he knew if he gave any energy to the subject, everybody's focus, which, Jan, would you open the other side too so we can get some cross? Um, the, uh, everybody's attention would immediately shift from, from God to in search of their soulmate, and it's, it's difficult enough to have keep people's minds on the real object of the game without making it worse. But nonetheless, Swami was always interested in it. He just, he, he, and he would talk about it periodically from some experiences he had himself and just other, other things that just was in his mind. And then that last book was about the subject. Now, I was thinking it from this point of view because oh, what's on the back cover of that book is uh, something Swami said to me. I, 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 it, it's either on the back or the inside, it doesn't matter. But I wrote this conversation that we had where Swami just brought up the subject and said, if every desire that we have has to be fulfilled before we can have God realization, which is something Master said, um, and God, he said, God would not plant a desire in our hearts that he did not also intend to fulfill. Because it, it, it wouldn't occur to you to want it if it wasn't somewhere in creation. And then Swami spoke, as he often did, very mm, compassionately about this, this deep need people feel for love. And, and really, as he said, we want to be loved personally. He said, not merely abstractly by God. And Swami was so human in his understanding. And so he put it like that. And he said, so because that desire is so deep in everyone, he said, it, it, there must be a reality to this. Because it, it's rarely fulfilled in human life. That's not to say that uh, individuals don't have life partners and have deep friendships, whether romantic or otherwise, 
you know, with, with, your, with your spouse, with your sisters, with your brothers, with your friends. I've been part of Ananda for 40, more than 40 years, and many, many people have been, I've walked this path with many friends with whom, you know, I just can't imagine having a closer human connection. Um, it just, it's just as real as it gets, with real nobility and, and real, mm, uh, not emotionalism, but just the fact of absolute loyalty and friendship. It's really one of the greatest gifts of the spiritual life, after the spiritual life itself. Um, but at the same time, even the best of friends, one always has this slight feeling that, you know, there's always the time when they don't quite understand. It just happens. Who, who, can, who can completely understand one another? You can have the best will in the world. But we're just, no one ever completely. We're just too unusual, each of us. And there's always that, there's still that little bit of a, a pull. So, everything that happens in a material or a human way is always a, a, a reflection, Swamiji has told us, the whole, the whole of creation is there to remind us and gradually guide us toward inner spiritual realities. So we, we have this, almost everyone does, this degree of inner restlessness, whether, we, um, whether it comes down all the way to the level of the sexual compulsion, which if you're in a human body, it's for most people somewhere it's there, it varies enormously in how people relate to it, but there's something that compels you. As Swamiji said, once people make such a, uh, a big deal, he said, out of sexual energy, he said, it's a physical compulsion. He said, like being hungry or like being cold. You know, it's just something that your body imposes upon you and it pushes you in a certain direction. And the whole of spiritual life is to gradually master all compulsions. And we... we, we train our willpower and develop our discrimination by doing battle with those compulsions, whatever they might be. And because the sexual compulsion is so forceful, it becomes a, a, a lion that people wrestle with. But here he's giving advice to the monks, so they've obviously made a certain decision in regard to that, that they're going to transcend it rather than go through it. Um, but, uh, and I'd, I'd said earlier about that where I've read it in several places, that it's the first thing that just pushes us out of outside of ourselves to find, well, union is how people always think about it. You, you sort of, the physical bodies always remain separate, so you do your very best to try to overcome that separateness, however temporarily, but in the end, you always have to separate again because we are separate. So even, it's symbolic, it's perfectly symbolic that the union cannot last. And so then there's always that hunger again. Because, of course, what we're looking for is, is union with God. But interestingly, Master just put in this little thought that that other union, that other more personal union, is also part of how we liberate ourselves. I, I, you know, it's, it's just a fascinating idea. And then... Swami mentioned that in this one conversation, and we, we talked about it a little bit, but he himself, on this subject, he would often go shrug his shoulders because he himself couldn't take it any farther than just speculation, and this seems sensible to him. 
So I was sort of meditating on all of the different aspects of this. If in fact, as now Master and Swamiji have both confirmed, that that inner desire, that really deep inner desire to be personally loved, is God-given and will be God-fulfilled. So some part of what pushes us in that direction is part of our is part of our natural heritage. I mean, our natural spiritual heritage. I don't know how else to put it. Um, but inasmuch as so often on the spiritual path, we're at least cautioned toward moderation, and assuming a celibate life is is a, a, a time honored tradition in religious life for extremely good reasons. It's a, a, a it's a very very positive spiritual practice. I've been a, a, sanya, a brahmacharini and a sannyasi now at both ends of my life so I've done it young and I've done it old and all I can say is it's a really good idea it's just really a very good idea and it has extremely solid spiritual basis for it it's not for most people but nonetheless that's the life now so but the union with the soulmate is nothing that you can go out questing. And that's why Master really didn't want to bring it up. Because by its very nature, if you're pushing away from your center, you, you, can't, you can't end up in the right place. You see? So it has to be something that instead is magnetized to you from your inner reality. And so I've been... Just trying to feel, I mean, I talk to you, lots of you at different times, about my thoughts about, for me at least, the inevitability I feel of incarnating in another body, unless when I leave this one, surprise, surprise, <laughs> they tell me it's all done, but I'm not counting on it. So I'm, I'm hedging my bet <laughs> by considering what it would be like to, to have a young body again. And I reflect on some of the more idiotic things I did during my um, callow youth <laughs> and hoping to, to... So I think about this. I think about the uh, compulsion I had as a teenager and as a, you know, as a young woman. Uh, I, I just, you know, I wanted to marry. I wanted to have a boyfriend. I just... All those things that everybody wants, at least in America, if you grow up as I did, you just sort of want that. And how it just kept pushing me outside myself and many not many but a number of times especially when I was a teenager I just made really stupid decisions based on just being swept up in all that energy just completely pulled off center and made really stupid decisions fortunately nothing that was even notable will hardly get a footnote in my life review but they were dumb decisions in any case because I was pushed outside of myself so I'm just trying to tune into the difference between being compelled to seek some kind of satisfaction and actually attracting to you, because of your inner magnetism, fulfillment. And even whether that fulfillment is less than perfect union with your soulmate, you know, maybe it is your destiny in this life to have a partner and, you know, be a householder. But the difference between being forced to do it and attracting it from your inner magnetism, I mean, that, that, those are the, the nuances that I've been trying to just sort of uh, find without, I mean, I can't speak to this definitively, 
I mean, I, I feel that I have been in my life compelled a great deal in, in many different directions. And I, I remember at one point just saying, I hope that God approves of this because, you know, I don't have really have a choice. My desires are stronger than my restraint. And I'm just hoping that this is, you know, it's not going to prove catastrophic. Unfortunately, nothing in my life has. But rather than say, this is what my life must look like, what I'm seeking is those understandings that would allow me to magnetize to myself what I need rather than be compelled to go out and grab it. You see the difference? And I mean, of all the ways that you can talk about sexuality, there's a million ways you can talk about it. But, you know, for most people, through the middle of their lives at least, um, celibacy is not an option. As Swami said, in this society especially, it's really not an option. That doesn't mean it's not highly desirable. It just means that it's a challenge and it's not the way for most people. And sometimes the, the too much focus on that energy um, doesn't serve you spiritually. It's much easier just to be natural and moderate in your life rather than too stern. But of course, Master was talking to monks and they'd made a strong decision. He says, I know many of you are weak. And so there you are. It's just the way you are. Then, then Swami adds into this about Kachari Mudra, which is turning the tongue back and slipping it up into the nasal passages, which is something we practice in Kriya. And it's a, you can practice it in Kriya, and it's a, an ancient technique. And it's peculiar seeming, but everything external also has an inner counterpart. So it's also just, it's extremely fascinating to realize that that which the average man or woman just takes as a necessary outward reality actually is completely already uh, contained within us. I mean, it's just remarkable uh, when you get into the more esoteric aspects of the path uh, how God has made us and how the yogis just piece by piece have just unraveled this and then articulated it for us. Ever and again through your awakened sons the answer comes. Um, these are not things that uh, you stand on a soapbox in Central Park and start talking about. Uh, but when he was talking to the monks in his ashram, he could say, no, you have the tools in front of you. If these are the things that are, you know, if you've made these resolutions, here's how you work with your energy. This is what you need to do. And there's this strange thing that it's always difficult until it's actually happened to you in one way or another as, as Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi said, you should never give up a pleasure until you have replaced it with a higher pleasure. In other words, you, suppression is when you really think it's wonderful, but you've just decided you can't have it, sort of energy, where it's nothing but self-denial, a kind of martyred self-denial. That's quite different, even if you're having to fight to discipline yourself, to an aware understanding that this is actually a better life for me. It's just, this is just a better life for me. And even if it isn't always effortless, it's a better life for me. And having been in this brahmachari sannyas stage twice in my life, you know, when I took it when I was younger, in my 20s, it was just like, this was a better life for me. I could just feel it. It was just the life that I, I wanted. And it wasn't effortless by any means. And in the end, I got married. But nonetheless, during that 10-year period, it was... It wasn't, nobody was depriving me of anything. You know, home, family, for a woman, it's much more than just sexuality, but the whole caboodle, kitten caboodle, 
it, uh, it didn't look like fun to me. <laughs> and if it doesn't look like fun to you, that's not like such a... If it looks like fun to you, then you have to work with your mind and work with your heart to figure out really where you belong. One of the things that happened in Ananda history, I think I mentioned it a little last week, but about 1980, 81, the monasteries at Ananda just got just huge. It was just like everybody was in the monastery and only about this many of the people who were in there actually belonged there. There were about this many who knew it was the right life for them and, it was a, and they wanted that life. The rest of them were there because they thought they ought to want that life. And Ananda was just getting completely twisted. And Swamiji was very concerned about it. And when he prayed to Master, he said, Master, I've set the example for everything in this, but you know we need examples of spiritual marriage. And Master said to him in his meditation, you could set the example. Swami's response was, Sir, I'm a monk. <laughs> and Master's inner response to him was, That doesn't matter anymore. Swami later wrote, He said, I became a monk in order to establish God first in my life. He said, But now God is established as first in my life. So marriage or not marriage doesn't matter. That's what he felt. That's what he felt Master doing. So in the end, Swami got married. And for about 12 years, he wasn't a sannyasi. From some of that, he was married. And some of that, he was single. And then he took it up again but it was uh, because monasticism was getting twisted within our community it wasn't really because I feel freer in this life and instead of people becoming freer and freer they were becoming more and more confined which was just exceedingly unwholesome and when Swami made the decision um, to get married to take a partner he said because he felt inwardly guided to do it and what happened in the community it was kind of, I don't know, like if you pull the bottom brick out of something and the whole pile kind of shakes down. Well, it's sort of like he raised the question, he, he raised the thought to us that we should act according to what we feel inwardly guided to do, not according to the form that we think is the best one. And it just flipped. And, and then the whole monastery just disintegrated, basically, at that point and has only reconvened in the last decade because it was not coming from a sincere place, the right place. Now, sexuality itself is not something, I mean, that you can just dictate on your own, because it being a partnership, if you don't have a partner, you get to be celibate whether you want to be or not. So sometimes it's imposed upon you, and it's nice to have a philosophy that makes it okay. <laughs> and sometimes it's chosen, because this is, this is where we are. You know, life gives you exactly what you're supposed to have. I know Nanda Moima, who never made any decisions at all in her own life, but just energy would flow through her. She had no relationship to it. And she, she was married when she was a girl, but her husband approached her on their wedding night and immediately realized that was a terrible mistake. So she was perfectly virgin and celibate through her whole life. And someone asked her about that. And she responded... This body has done, I mean, I don't have the words exactly right, so I'll give you the meaning. This body has served as, as an example of what is necessary as a human being, so apparently that is not necessary as a human being. That was her complete response. Just apparently that's not needed, <laughs> you know, for a happy, fulfilling, appropriate human life, which was just, was just a very interesting, because she had such a, an impersonal way of relating to this body, as she called it 
It's very interesting to hear that, which is comforting. So, any comments or thoughts on that before we move on to wine, intoxicants? Okay. Yes. Uh, where the, the could somebody hand her the microphone, please? So you're saying that this desire for a soulmate continues into the astral world if a person, you know, finishes, or is it just really part of physical karma? No, Master's talking about full, complete liberation. And if you're united in vision and your, bo- your, your, your soulmate could be on another planet or in the astral world, then it's beyond, way beyond physical. I mean, I'm just quoting. I don't know anything about it. I just find it fascinating. For, for me, what I've been trying to work with is, you know, to, to actually uh, know yourself is not so easy. And, you know, to, to both have the courage, the clarity of mind, uh, just the calmness, to just be able to be yourself. I mean, Swamiji was utterly relaxed and, and without the slightest either pretense or defensiveness or embarrassment about anything. You know, he, he, he would just talk about anything in the most relaxed and easy way. It's just whatever he was, he was. And he had uh, tremendous self-knowledge because there was nothing he was afraid to know. And so often in our desire to cope, we, we don't really know what's really motivating us. And we, we assume attitudes that are, we assume them because we feel we have to have them or we need them to survive. And, and to actually just stop everything enough to know what you really feel. And Swami just commenting that about the soulmates, it's like, it's just so interesting to me. Where is that in me? You know, what is that? In, and I, that's, where I, that's where I'm coming to with all of this. So, no, I don't think it's just about the material body. I think it's about the way we're made. That's why the, the union is so subtle and so interesting. Uh, yes, questions over here? What did I say? I said that's why the connection with soulmates is so subtle and so interesting. Because it isn't really, has nothing to do with life as we know it, as far as I can see. There's also that story in, um, is it an autobiography of a yogi or is it in the path about the monk who was restless and his guru said, God's going to give you a gift today. And the monk was on a, a train going this way and there was a train going this way that stopped at the station. And he looked and he saw a woman in the car over here who, abs- who so perfectly epitomized his ideal of of feminine perfection. He looked at her, the train went on, and all his, he was completely at peace at that point. And Swami, in some context, referred to that story as that must have been that kind of connection. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how um, at peace you are in your heart, but still he magnetized that much of a connection. Fascinating, isn't it? Yes, uh, no, uh, Ekavir behind you. The, the passage about Pichari Mudra being achieving physically that inner union, that 
say that it could replace that sense of satisfaction physically? Apparently. Apparently. I mean, it's, it's the male half looking for the female half. It's, you know, there's a whole uh, science, you know, of sexuality. Uh, and, and, it's, and the Indian side of things talks about it, but it's not, it's not what people in the West imagine it to be. But there's a science to everything, and if you get very impersonal about it, you can speak about it. But there's just that longing for male and female to unite. And so male and female can unite right within one body, whether it's male or female. And so what, what the Kichari Mudra does, as, they descri- as he describes it, I can't speak about it myself, but is, uh, it, it just brings you to a state of contentment. I mean, you're not pushed outside yourself. I mean, see, that's what it all. That's why sexuality is the beginning of all delusion. That's how they describe it. Because you're just you have to you have to seek outside yourself because you're restless inside and you're trying to seek some kind of peace outside yourself. But if you can just be within yourself and feel that peace, then why would you ever move from there? And it, it uh, Swamiji says it tastes like you. You have a taste like like uh, milk and honey. So, and that's in the uh, in Old Testament. They were seeking the land of milk and honey. It's a very esoteric reference. Yes. Talking about Kachari Mudra, apparently at the village they have um, a month-long practice of actually elongating your tongue mm-hmm. so that you could actually practice the um, mudra. And in fact, they have groups that need to practice Kachari. Just, yeah, then. exactly. So. No, it's worth, it's worth working on. I mean, the benefits of it are great. Yeah. There you have it. And it's, you know, it's a bit on the weird side for most Westerners. And there you have it. <laughs> These days, anybody who's watching this anywhere can just Google it. And you can see the whole story there, so I don't have to really say a lot. But there it is. There's just a lot of st- very strange things. I and mean, there's many more strange things, but mostly they're not t- talked about. And I don't talk about them because I don't know them. But I'm sure they're all there. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? So, now, oh, we don't have to read anymore. Now about wine. So, I I don't remember what I said about money last week, but I'm sure it was interesting. (laughs) And now I've just spoken about sexuality, so I can't recap what I said. And uh, I I do my best to forget as soon as possible. Can you imagine if I was replaying the tapes? I would be absolutely, I'd be mad. I'd be even more mad than I am. Okay. Wine. Wine is a very, very interesting one. Because wine is the belief that if I can reduce my awareness and lower my energy, I will have an actual cessation of pain and an increase of happiness. That's what it represents. So you don't have to ever, you can be a complete teetotaler and still be subject to this delusion. And uh, it's, it's, we, we sort of grow up, I mean, spiritually speaking, we just have this thought. And so many people, they're always looking to rest. You know, people want to retire, they want to get home from work, or they want to get the kids out of the house, or they want to finally get enough money. But there's just this thought in my mind that my, if I could just rest, I would be happier. In other words, if I could reduce the demands upon me, especially if I could reduce my energy level, and also, people just don't want to know. And so we drink, which is, a, a, you know, uh, intoxicants, is really good. We take drugs. We eat too much. 
we sleep too much, and nowadays you can just watch television or turn on your devices and literally long periods of time will go by in which nothing will be asked of you. You know, we watch television. I think that's such an interesting phrase. Let's watch television. You know, if you, if you just think about it, you just sit there and you watch this. And you see children, too. When you put children in front of television, as they say, you know, they, they behave in a way they never behave at any other time. They just become completely... Uh, you know, all their restlessness just goes away. All their energy goes away, in fact. But all their curiosity, everything, it just... It just, it, it just, it's an intoxicant and that's why it's a wonderful babysitter when you're just, you've had it trying to just keep up with this endless outward moving energy of children you just put them in front of an entertainment screen it all stops they just become drugged like it I, I read this, this was years ago before all of the individual screens but this family, this man they were highly educated people and but their son started having a very difficult time in school. He was about third grade. Just, you know, he just wasn't behaving and he wasn't learning. And the uh, uh, parents just had the intuition that it was the television. He, they just, this was before there was a lot written about this. They just intuitively knew it. So their children came home and their children were accustomed to watching quite a lot of television. This is all like old school now. Nobody talks in the same way now because you have the little iPads and everything. Um, but the children came home from school one day and the television was gone. And he said, not unplugged, not in the garage. <laughs> they said, gone. They just took it away. He said, for one month, their children behaved like heroin addicts going through withdrawal. They just, you know, they were having emotional fits. They were having physical problems. They were having sleeplessness. And he said it was, it was quite intense. And they were, you know, frantic. He said, and then after a month, they, it started to subside, and then they started behaving like children. They started being creative, they started reading, they started playing outside. Com school problems completely disappeared. You know, it was just, they were drugged. And, because, and also because they were drugged, you know, what happens when you have a drug is that you want to have it again. So, and other things, one of my friends who used to work with a lot of the teenagers in um, the kids, as people do in our society, though, Master says, Master says, don't ever even take a sip of alcoholic beverage. He said, not a sip. You have no idea what scars you have. He said, you may have been an alcoholic in the past, and that one sip will just awaken it like that. People think it doesn't matter. Master was very strict. He said, just don't ever even, don't give yourself the chance, because you just don't know. But uh, let's see what, uh, what was I going to say there? I lost the thought. Oh yes, the, teen, the teenagers were doing a little of this and a little of that and he was more sort of trying to walk the line and they said, how much, how much is too much? He said, when you have a really fun experience and you think how much more fun this would have been if we were stoned. <laughs> in other words, if you now start measuring what's enjoyable in terms of how much you have drugged your consciousness. If you're no longer able to just experience your own consciousness. It was, an, it was a very interesting and a, a thoughtful way to offer it to the kids instead of just saying yes or no. But that's what happens is that when, when you, you find this sort of shortcut to relief of pain, this goes with the relief of pain side. 
I mean, I know, certainly speaking for myself, you know, there's just times when the desire to get out of my own consciousness is so intense. I mean, I've talked about this in these classes at different times. It's just one of my little stories. You know, I, my, my mental world is my intense world. And uh, not that I have done it in a long time, but suicide and madness. I mean, these are things that people do when their inner world becomes so intense. And I, those are my particular threads. But, you know, just that desire just to not have to deal with whatever it is. And, and if you find that, boy, that wine will do it, the beer will do it, the heroin will do it, the television will do it, the promiscuity will do it, whatever will just stop it. It's very addictive. It's actually the only word for it. Because you think, if I become unaware, then I'll become better. But of course the problem is whatever it is that you're trying to run away from doesn't leave just because you close your eyes to it. It's as simple as that. I've joked with you all about, you know, I have these radio microphones and I use a, a little belt with a pocket just to be able to wear them. And when I would travel, sometimes I would, you know, arrive at the hall and whoever was my video guy, like Brian was often, he would hand me the microphone and would be under this dress. And sometimes I'd have to sort of pull up the, the tunic. I mean, I have a pair of trousers on. There's nothing. But it's very undignified. And I just never liked doing it, so I would always close my eyes. <laughs> and I did it for a long, long time before I realized I would, wherever I'd be standing, I mean, I wouldn't stand in front. I'd stand in the back. But I'd just close my eyes while I did it because I couldn't see it anyway because I thought somehow then nobody else could see me. <laughs> It's just the little mind just playing a little trick. This is an embarrassing situation. I'll try to become less aware of it. Just bingo like that. That's what wine is about. And of course, it gets horrible when you have actually gotten your body chemistry all snarled up in that. But it's, a, it's something that we have to fight all the time. It's one of the three major delusions. It's just we want to be able to escape suffering and the only way to escape suffering is to transcend it with higher awareness. We have to just see it from a higher perspective. And it's not, it's not as if the issue, whatever it is, as big as your fist, actually changes. It's just, you know, when you're, when you're obsessed with something, it's just right there and there's nothing else you can deal with. It stays the same, but your energy gets bigger around it. You know, this, there are many, many painful, tragic unbearable things that happen on this plane of consciousness that happen to each of us that we have inflicted upon others I mean there, there are things that there is no, nothing that can make that beautiful so it's not like you can make it okay it isn't okay but what you do is you just see it bigger like that that's all just today Karen and I were out for a walk and this woman comes she's pushing a baby carriage and it's interesting, we, we both of us picked up the vibe before we really knew. And there was a child a little larger for, than the baby carriage, seemed a little bit large for that, and I noticed the child had her mouth open. And the closer we got, we saw that this child had some kind of, I don't know, oxygen, medical devices. Clearly, maybe the baby was two. And this is a child with really serious physical, neurological issues. And you could... It was almost like the mother just, you know, dared us 
to have an opinion. I mean, you know, defied us. How you know? Don't have an opinion. You could just feel. It was very. It was very um, poignant. And you know, what could you do? Here's the karma just walking right by you. The mother and the child were just on a sidewalk. I just tried to be cordial. Um, but you know, you also you take it in really fast, and you really realize what's going on. There's no way to make that. Oh, it's all so lovely. It's all God's will. I mean, she might have shot me if I'd said, isn't this nice? God has given you this wonderful test. Oh, your little karma, isn't it nice to see it? I mean, those are horrible things to say. It's just everything about it was almost more than you could do. How do you, how do you deal with that? You have to get bigger. You have to see this as one incarnation and one very complicated karmic debt that's being paid. It's the only way. If you just drink, you just wake up in the morning and there it is again. If you rail against God, you wake up in the morning and there it is again. If you make airy-fairy affirmations, it just keeps pounding on you until you can't hold that anymore. And so we have to always be, you know, always be moving with that. It's, it's, um, wine is really everything on the spiritual path, whether you drink or not. I mean, drinking and that sort of thing for me is long in the past, but I can, I can understand it. I can just see why people do it. And the real problem with it is, it doesn't work. It's just as simple as that. It doesn't bring you what you want. If it worked, that would be great. But it doesn't. And everybody, step by step on the spiritual path, just has to go through that. And that's the good news. wonder what the next one is. <laughs> My voice is going too soft tonight. Okay. Oh, this one's not working. Pardon me? Oh, they're using this one up here? Okay. Well, then this one isn't working. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, any, any other questions or thoughts? Right above us? Okay. All right. I'll try not to keep letting my voice drop. But I forget. Okay, the eighth point in this one. He says, don't waste time on distractions, reading too much and so on. Reading can be good if it is instructive and inspiring, but if you let it interfere with meditation, it becomes an evil. Read only a little bit to find inspiration, but spend most of your time in meditative silence. Consider this. Every day, 100 books, more or less, are published. You couldn't read them all if you wanted to. No one, no matter how brilliant, could absorb more than a tiny fraction of the knowledge available. Scientists often pride themselves on their knowledge, but can they explain how even a simple leaf was created? Why stuff your head with other people's discoveries anyway? That is all one accomplishes by reading all the time. I always say, if you read one hour, then write two hours, think three hours, and meditate all the time. It's very demanding instruction. You know, to me, the kind of... Well, he's talking about two kinds of reading here. And he also mentions distractions, but then he passes right over to reading. You know, it's the same. Distractions are also a little bit like wine. I, I myself, uh, I, I have to be realistic. If you, if you, if you get too, uh, if you push yourself too hard, you will end up losing everything. Swamiji was asked once, how much discipline is enough discipline? 
And he said, that which you can do joyfully. He said, as soon as it becomes grim, he said, loosen the screws a little bit, back up, until you can embrace it joyfully. And when I was speaking, and joyfully doesn't mean that you're always happy about it, but that inside your heart you know what you're doing and it's okay. And that was the same thing I was saying earlier about the monastery back in those early years. It's like for, for some people, that kind of limitation, there was a sense of freedom in it. Disciplining yourself to a certain limitation made you feel bigger and freer and not smaller and confined. So with all of the instructions on the spiritual path, if, if you keep adding things that make you feel more and more confined, that you're, you're going in the wrong direction, it's very subtle because by no means, and there was a very, very popular um, spiritual, I'll put that in quote, teacher in the 70s and 80s, and Ananda perfectly summarized his teaching. Just do whatever you feel like doing, but we'll just call it spiritual. And he had hundreds, thousands of followers. I mean, what a great teaching. You could drink, you could be promiscuous, you could just have lots of money, you could do anything, but God is everything. I mean, it, it was presented as a spiritual teaching. It was just garbage. But So you don't want to go there. But at the same time, if everything in the world becomes evil, um, it, then uh, you, you just can't move. And you will end up off the spiritual path, or literally you'll lose your mental balance. So, uh, for example, I remember when we did the dedication ceremony for our community in 1989. Um, we made up this uh, dance to Swami's chant of Sri Gurudeva Om, which turned out to be an extremely unfortunate choice. He'd just written that chant. And we made up this dance that we thought, we had all like 20 couples out there, and we, we did all this. We thought it was just so terrific, and we were so proud of it, and we performed it for Swamiji, and he was conspicuously silent on the point after he watched it. And then afterwards, we were in the house, and I asked him what he thought. The first thing he said rather plaintively was, essentially, why did you choose that chant? As soon as he said it, I understood. It was a very sacred inward chant, and we were cavorting on the lawn, and it just was, for him, it was, how could you possibly have interpreted this chant in that way? It was just, and it did the instant he said it, it, it with him it was so funny, because I would... A lot of times in my life, I would just do something that seemed like such a good idea. But then his vibration would enter, and it was like I would wake up out of sleep. And I, I couldn't understand. I could have been so blind. This is one of those moments, you know. I could ever have made me think that was a good idea. We should have done, you know, just anything but that. So that was the beginning of it. Then the second part of it was he... He was very concerned, and he, he was always attentive to this. He never really wanted, he, he wanted to be sure we never diluted our essential spiritual practice. You know, Kriya Yoga, silent meditation, even, even chanting that doesn't also include meditation at different times, he said, the point is silence. All of, everything that you do is to get you into that stillness and that experience. So he was concerned a little bit about the dancing from that point of view. He didn't want it to become our sat. I said, and that, so I understood that. I said, oh no, Swamiji, I'm not thinking of it as sadhana. I'm not even thinking of it as spiritual. I said, if we weren't out on the lawn cavorting to the music, we might be at home watching movies. I said, that's the exchange I'm talking about. Oh, he said, then it's fine. 
But that's sort of how we have to understand it. So when I think in terms of distractions, it's not an option for me to be serious all the time. It's just not an option. You know, I just, my brain is too tightly wired. It has to have its moments. So I just try to go on the spectrum, both in, in time and in quality. Just like how I don't want to fall, there's always a, a top and a bottom to what you're doing. So, and how much time you spend on it. And, and the others, then that's where reading comes in, recreational reading is what I always call it. And I have, I have suffered from TMN, too many novels. <laughs> and at different times I go cold turkey. And mostly I try not to read novels, but every so often life is too much. And unfortunately with the Kindle, you can always access something. That's the good and the bad news about the Kindle. It's always there. But I'm, I'm honest about it. That's the best you can be. But you, just, you really just need to watch yourself. It, this, it's, just, it's a drug. Here I am, and which way is my energy going to go? Am I going to take it down into lower awareness or up into higher awareness? And is there a compromise point? Can I read inspiring books? Then he talks about reading it, reading on another level where people feel the need to keep up. You know, just this somehow like this, this uh, avaricious need almost to just be informed, just to be informed and to know what all the latest things are. And again, it's, a, it's a, a, an outward moving energy that imagines it will be satisfied. And Master just speaks of the folly of that. I remember when my mother was at the end of her life. Uh, we never really had any serious philosophical discussions. It just wasn't in her nature. But at one point I asked her how she felt about dying. And her answer was so adorable. Oh, I just hate to think of all this going on and my not being part of it anymore. I thought, well, that's, that's a perspective, isn't it? <laughs> but that's how, you know, she was interested in the presidential election and just all that. And that's what Master was talking about. There's hundreds of books written. You'll never understand them all. Don't just get this idea in your mind that knowledge itself is going to give you something. Information is going to give you something. It's not. You have to take whatever you do know. And that's what he says. You know, think, meditate. Meaning, make whatever, whatever you're doing, make it your inner reality rather than just accumulating it from the outside. That's, what, that's the point he's trying to make. So let's take a short break and then if you have any questions we'll take them before we go on. Um, I was asked a question that I think is worth repeating out loud was between you know being too constrained and cutting yourself a little slack I mean which is better Swamiji always said it was better I mean the worst thing you can do and it's even in the Bhagavad Gita is, is suppression and suppression, remember, is when you, you really think it's good and you really want it, but you're just not going to let yourself have it. It's, it's different than a conscious understanding of, of the discipline you're undergoing. It's a subtlety, but you have to undersee it. But if you just suppress things and you actually still believe that they would make you happy, but you just can't have them, um, as the energy always just twists inside of you and shoots out in some other direction. And And if it's I mean, this is a huge psychological thing that everybody knows about. If, it's, if your energy is too suppressed, it comes out in some un, seemingly unrelated way in which it doesn't make any sense and you can't really figure out where it's coming from and you don't really know what you're upset about and you haven't transcended anything. You've just twisted things up and made it even harder. 
even if you're behaving badly or, or wrongly in the sense of you're not acting in your own best interest, at least the energy is moving, it's right in front of you, you understand what's going on, and you can actually just sort of see cause and effect at work and gradually redirect it. Yeah, Swami was talking about emotions, and at, at Ananda especially, generally speaking, we're, we're more restrained in our emotional expression. In that time we were on the border of suppression. This was all the same period of time where people just, just couldn't. They didn't. They couldn't. They were, you know, even couples. They, nobody was affectionate even. It was just very, very stiff. And he said it's far better to be over-emotional than to, than to be, the phrase he used was self-censoring, where you're just always not allowing yourself to be for the same reason that one, you just, the energy is not expressed in one way, but it's not really transcended, so it just shoots out somewhere else and you have no idea what's really happening. And again, even if you're over-emotional, at least you're trying. At least you're trying to understand what's happening, who you are, and then you can see it. And you'll feel the consequences of it, and then you can gradually move it. That was a hard thing for, for him to get across, because we were all uh, sort of, you know, suppressed monastics who had you know, just learned to behave. But there was no freedom inside. We, we had just learned to behave. And learning to behave is far from being free. And you can't do it unless you know what, you, what you're dealing with. And so sometimes it's, sometimes it's embarrassing. Really, but there you have it. I'm, I've never been very good at... Well, no, I've been quite good at suppression. <laughs> I've been good at all of it. Name the delusion. I'm a master of it. You know, we all are. It's just the way it is. Was there anything else to that? No, I think that was it. Any other questions or comments about what we were dealing with? You know, there's another aspect to money that I don't think I mentioned, but it just needs to be said, which is... Sometimes people, it's not really money itself that they become attached to. It's the power that money gives you. And so it, it, sometimes people will say, I'm not, you know, I'm not that interested in money, but money can also give you a certain power over other people or over circumstances or power over your own life. And you can think that money doesn't attach, attract you, but in your mind the money gives you the power and the power is what attracts you. And so it's just, there's just very subtle ways in which this works. And Ananda power is not something that people, you don't see it as much. It's somehow it's, our family doesn't seem as inclined that way. That's partly because Swamiji is so humble. It's just so humble and he trained us so, um, just so much away from that kind of self-aggrandizement. So you don't see it as much in our community. But it's an interesting um, I, when we were all very, very poor, and I talked about this the last time, about, you know, money, not having money takes away all your options. You, you, you become quite powerless without money. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to just sort of watch all the implications of it, or the degree to one thinks that one has to have money to have power. I, I just wanted to put those words out there because I'm not really sure that I had so far. So, any other questions or comments before we go scooting on so now we are up to no matter how much the organization keeps me busy master was speaking I never forego my daily tryst with God 
Faithfully, I practice Kriya Yoga and meditate. This is Master's last advice to the monks, is you've, you've got to keep up your meditation practice. And he's, it's not only that he's speaking about the meditation and practice itself, and the power of Kriya Yoga to overcome the vrittis, which will in itself free you of all the other things that are bothering you. Because all of the attachments that I was just talking about or the impulses, the restless impulses that move us out from ourselves are just the vrittis in the spine moving. And it's, it's, a, it's, so, um, it's so exact that the movement of those vrittis is what makes us unable to be still inside ourselves. We, we try to become silent, we try to meditate, and then all of these energies start just making our consciousness jerk in one way or another. And the practice of Kriya, particularly, or a meditation technique like that, dissolves those vrittis directly. So you're, you're, we're struggling on the outside to, to keep that karma from compelling us, those, those unresolved desires from compelling us into actions we don't want. But if we're also practicing our meditation regularly, in, it, to some extent, we're burning the seeds of karma. So it, it's kind of like, a, I always think of it as a, a drag race, you know, like in the teenage movies where you rum rum and you have these two cars and you have, you know, your spiritual practices are one and your, the karma that's take, wanting to take you in the wrong direction is the other and they, they go like this and if you just keep, you know, eventually the, the positive one's going to get ahead and this one's going to be left in the dust. But they do fight like this a lot. The other thing about daily meditation, well, there's a million things about daily meditation, but another aspect, and it's very subtle, it's like when you lose that divine connection, you don't even know that you've lost it because you've lost it. And so you can't, you can't remember what you don't have anymore. And a whole other way of looking at life begins to make sense to you. When you're when you're in that divine vibration, and meditation is among the ways, and a very important way, in which we align ourselves continually and just bathe in that pulse. But it's so subtle. It's such a subtle way of being that when we um, neglect it too long and, and we don't renew that, we don't even know that we don't have it anymore. And, and then the world just begins to look to us a certain way and we just start making decisions and those decisions seem to make sense to us. In all the years that I've been essentially in standing in one place in relation to Ananda, I mean being in Ananda and just standing in Ananda since I've never left it, a lot of people have gone, come and gone like this and I've watched them. And it's, it's always like that. There's just this, the phrase we use, you just get a little out of tune with it. And once you're a little out of tune with the spiritual thing that's holding you, then you start getting in tune with all sorts of other things. And whereas they never looked attractive to you when you were vibrating here, all of a sudden they start matching. Whether it's preoccupations that will take you farther away, or interests, or desires, or relationships, or annoyances with what you used to enjoy, boredom, with what used to inspire you. You know, people will say, well, it just doesn't inspire me like it used to. 
That's very common. But it doesn't inspire you like you, it used to because you're no longer in the vibration. So yeah, well, you, you stand, you're vibrating differently and you stand in the vibration that used to match you and nothing happens anymore. So just all these you know, ways in which you just have to keep, and you grow, you learn to grow suspicious when, when your mind starts giving you ideas that you didn't used to have in terms of, uh, oh, <laughs> well, this was, this was not exactly that, but this man came to me once. Sometimes people say the darndest things to me. It's really a lot of fun, actually. He came and he sat down in front of me once and he said, uh, you know, a lot of people find you inspiring, but I don't. <laughs> and my response was, he lived in this community. I said, oh, you, he said, he said, I, I just, I really, when you talk, I just, I just feel nothing, he said. I said, you poor man, I talk all the time. <laughs> he was sort of so disarmed by my, just like, oh, it must be awful for you. But it's like your mind, I mean, not that you need to feel that I'm inspiring, you're sitting in this room, so apparently it's not too much of a misery. But when your mind starts telling you things, that you used to have a different thought. Oh, I used to like Swami's music, but now I've grown bored with it. You know, I used to like to come to the uh, morning meditations, but now, you know, I just, I just really don't enjoy them like I used to. I mean, that's what people will say. I don't enjoy them like I used to. And they'll, they'll see that to mean that somehow they've gone on from it, or... But should you have to be very suspicious of your mind when it starts justifying your pulling back pulling back from immersing yourself in the vibration. And when you meditate every day, and you don't miss your Kriya practice, it's a lot less likely to happen. Because once it's started, it's very hard to stop. And that's when people leave. Leave ashrams, leave monasteries. Just, they just leave. And then many years later, I had a man come here, whew, uh, he had been a, a young man at Ananda village, very bright, um, with a lot of promise. He got involved in a relationship, and not everyone was sure it was the best relationship. And the woman took him off, and then he wandered in here, like, what's it been, 40 years later? Wow, he did not look better. I mean, we all age, but he did not look better. But it all just started, just one step at a time, and then one thing led to another, and then there you are. You just you have a clear idea of what you're doing, and when, you, when your mind starts giving you other ideas, be very suspicious. You know, just be very suspicious. Yes, microphone. Just uh, one other comment on that last line how precise it is. He says, faithfully, I practice Kriya Yoga and meditate. That's it's just true. a reminder that you, you don't just sit down and just do your techniques, check it off the list, That's and, a very and good go. Point. It, it makes you remember, okay, wait, what is meditation if not Kriya Yoga? And Master said, meditation is concentration on God or one of his aspects. So like That's actual exactly right. contact. Right. There, his daily tryst with God is not just the techniques, it's really no. what the techniques are aiming at. Thank you, Tondo. That's an extremely important point. Because what it is when you're meditating is you want to, um, well, you want to have, con you want to have a tryst with God. 
I mean, that's what, that's what makes it so worthwhile, is you're just, oh yes, that's right. Here I am again. I'm back, to, I'm back to zero. I can go on from here. Otherwise, I feel like you're just like, I mean, to me, it's like, if you don't meditate, you're just a rock that just keeps rolling down the hill and just keeps rolling. I mean, like, it's, when does it stop? It's very scary. That's what my life felt like before I found the spiritual path. It's exactly what I felt like. It felt like I was just rolling down the hill and where was I going and when would it stop? And then the spiritual path became the tether so that even though the self, you know, it's, it's now it's one of those rubber paddles, you know, that no matter how far that elastic thing goes out, at a certain point, the elastic is stretched as far as it'll go and then it'll start coming back in. And uh, I, it can go pretty far. You know, I may go far farther than the stars, <laughs> but if you're tethered. And so when you stop meditating or stop having your daily tryst with God, you can cut that tether inadvertently. And that's when it, I mean, that's a, it's a very scary image. And you, want, you want these images to be extremely terrifying. <laughs> Seriously, you want them to be really just as ghastly as you can possibly imagine. You want to think of every terrible thing that could happen to you if you don't um, persevere. I mean, I've talked to people so many times and I've talked to myself. Someone was talking to me recently and just, you know, just how awful their karma was. And like, what can I do? Endure. I wish I could give you another answer. I said to someone, your, you know, your, your past karma and your future karma are crossing right where you're standing and it's not pretty. But it's, there's no alternative. And uh, Swamiji has often been asked, you know, what are the keys to, to success on the spiritual path? So you just absolutely realize you have no choice. It's the, there's no wine. There's no way out except through the middle. And then even if it's quite difficult, and unfortunately sometimes it can be, what's the alternative? And daily meditation, since we were talking about that, that's part of what does it. Oh yes, there's another reality, no matter what it seems like, this is where I really live, and this is where I will come back to. I mean, some of the people I admire the most at Ananda are some of the ones who went away for a long time and basically, you know, got run over by quite a few big pieces of machinery and uh, crawled back, but crawled back. You know, just at the end of it, just said, wow, that didn't work. Let me go back to where I started. And a lot of times such people are infinitely stronger. Was Ananta talking about that at Spiritual Renewal Week? Someone was talking about the Hound of Heaven and about the man who... Oh, it was you! About the Hound of Heaven and how that man was an opium addict and had a terrible life experience. But at the end of it, he turned it into art. That's what I remember now. He turned it into art. And he turned it into absolute devotion to God. And he knew stronger than most because he'd been so far down. Okay, an easy life is not necessarily a victorious one. I'll take one, but... (laughs) Okay. Some of those who come here, Master says, and later return to the world, go out with a spirit of rejection... After a life of renunciation, they renounce any further spiritual effort. They don't know what they had here. Please, all of you, realize your good fortune 
how easy the spiritual path is if you give even a little time each day to meditation. Meditate intensely morning and evening. And he's saying the same thing there. Even 15 minutes of meditation is better than no time at all. Better still, make it half an hour or even one hour. Do 108 kriyas, chant Om at the spiritual centers, then listen inwardly to the sounds. If you like, resume your practice of Hong Sa or do Bhakti Yoga, a devotional self-offering to God. Practice watching the breath with Hong Sa in the spine. If you like, go up and down the spine with it instead of watching its flow in the nostrils. Tell your body, if you don't meditate regularly, I will give you a whipping. (laughs) Meditate even one and a half hours at a time if you can. Everything you do, even if it is only picking up a straw off the ground like Brother Lawrence, offer it mentally to God. If only you will do that, he will reach down and help you. So sweet, isn't it? Also, Master's just running through all the options, isn't it? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, hour and a half, Kriya, Hongsa. Yeah, pardon me? Yeah, just this and this. And Swamiji, I've, I've heard Swamiji when he used to teach meditation classes. He would say, I'll bargain with you. <laughs> five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night. You know, just start somewhere and do something. And then he's running, Master's running like the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, if all else fails, then just pick up a straw, but do it with the consciousness of God. I mean, he's, he's talking to these monks, and he's, he's trying to help them to understand what they have. Because time and again, we come into this, and then, like the tide, we get swept away. And not everyone, as Swami put it once, has what he called lifelong spiritual karma. Sometimes have, people just have a little bit, and it... We used to uh, run a, when I, we lived in the trailers and we weren't hooked, when I lived in a little tiny travel trailer and we weren't hooked up to any um, utilities of any kind. Um, I had a gas heater and a little gas burner and it was on a, a portable propane tank. Big tanks like this. I call them portable, but it took either some of the men or several of the women to move those things. and They would be set up outside your trailer and you, with nozzles like this. But everything would work until it would suddenly stop working. Um, and often, you know, just it would just stop. You'd just be there in the winter and all of a sudden your heater would go out and that would be that because the tank had just run out and there was nothing you could do. We tried to keep, of course, two, and, but there was always, well, it was just part of life there. The middle of the night, some poor freezing friend of yours comes banging on your door because they need you to help them haul a propane tank down from the top of the hill and I mean many a wintry night saw us out there dragging those stupid propane tanks around but uh, it became an image in my mind because as long as there was gas in the tank the fire burned but as soon as the gas went out the fire just went out and then there was just nothing sort of nothing you could do and when Swami would talk about spiritual karma it, it's like it's sort of like that and I, I don't sometimes when I say these things people get real scared I don't mean to frighten you but you can just spend it and then it'll be gone and that's where he's saying you don't know what you have here you know you, you just one has lots of spiritual opportunities but you just don't take them you've had the, the good karma to be brought to a teacher to a teaching to a sangha to a path to a technique but you just don't use it 
You just squander, you squander the good karma of having been brought by not, but you don't add any more to it. And then the fuel just burns out. And then suddenly you find yourself and you've wandered off. And maybe this incarnation, it'll occur to you again that maybe I was doing something. Um, somebody came back, one of the most poignant ones that ever happened was somebody came back and he'd been, he'd been quite active a decade ago, maybe. And he, he didn't look well. And he just said, I tried to remember the last time I was happy. And he said, and that was when I was coming here. So he, he was trying to come back. He, for some reason he didn't stick. But it was, oh, it was very poignant. I tried to remember the last time I was happy. <sighs> so you want to always be just not burning. You want to not just be burning. You want to constantly be replenishing. And so then Master gives us all the different ways. You know, just do this or do this or do this or do this. Master said, you have to do one one-hundredth of what he taught. But everybody will do a different one one-hundredth. So he said, that's why I had to teach so much. <laughs> I've gotten very um, casual about that in a certain sense. As long as you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you keep freshening and you keep trying and you keep doing it, it, it's not order- it doesn't have to be tidy. I used to think it had to be really tidy. No, nah, it doesn't have to be tidy. You just have to keep just stumbling forward. We're like soldiers just trying to get across a battlefield with the bullets of delusion. And we, don't ha- we can be wounded. It's no problem. <laughs> just keep going. That's all that matters. Like Master said, 15 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, om at the chakras, whatever works. That's the uh, science and the art. That's what we want. Well, anything else? Okay, that's it. Can I have somebody's pen? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So we're still hanging out in number 149, and we haven't finished it yet. We're almost finished, but not quite. Does someone have a pen? May I borrow your pen? Oh, Tondo, thank you. Okay, we are actually right in the middle of this great big long one, number 149, which Swamiji described as the following words were among the last advice that Master gave to the monks. And I actually numbered the points, and there are like 13 of them, I think, maybe more. 13 points, and so this is number six. And it was wine, sex, and money. And for some reason I decided to start at the end and I talked about money, as I recall. At least that's what I wrote down here. So I still have the other two. I'm just going to read it again since we're still on it. Wine, sex, and money. These are the three great delusions. Don't be trapped by them. Some of you are weak. I know, but don't be discouraged. Meditate regularly and you will find a joy inside that is real. You will then taste something you can compare to sense pleasures. That comparison will automatically make you want to forsake your sorrow-producing bad habits. The best way to overcome temptation is to have something more fulfilling to compare it with. Um, I'm going to read the next one, which is also about sexuality, and then I'll talk about that. Um, Sex seems pleasant to you now. But when you discover the joy of real inner union, you will see how much more wonderful that is. 
This union can be achieved physically also by what is known in yoga as kachari mudra, touching the tip of the tongue to nerves in the nasal passage or to the uvula, uvula at the back of the mouth. And then there's a little so- footnote here. It isn't possible, unfortunately, to explain this esoteric technique of kachari mudra here. I hope it will suffice simply to allude to it. Um, so I'll deal with wine and intoxicants in a minute, but I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about sexuality. Um, there's an interesting uh, statement elsewhere and something else that uh, was written, and I don't even remember it clearly. But it was talking about how the sexual impulse is the beginning of all delusion. It was actually an interesting comment because it's the force that just pushes you outside of yourself right away, more than any other impulse. It pushes you outside of yourself, and then once you start into that reality, you just start reaching out. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot um, in terms of Swami's conversation about soulmates. And... Uh, his book, I, I talked about some of this at Spiritual New Week, and I don't know, I, I do my best to forget what I've said, but I know that I, I touched on this, but I don't remember how far I went. The, that last book that Swami wrote, Love Perfected, Life Divine, which was the rewrite of Marie Corelli's romantic novel about this woman and her meeting of her soulmate, and then all of the lives they had together, and it's a, it's a marvelous book. Marie Corelli's book is very entertaining, Swami's is better because Marie Corelli took the idea of soulmates and basically just took human romance and um, inflated it, whereas Swami just took it to a completely other reality. But still, she had a lot that was interesting. Um, Swamiji would talk about the idea of soulmates on, uh, every so often, and he said Master himself talked about it once. And he talked about it in the context of, the, of his commentary on the Bible, and he was talking about the passage, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And that is often spoken of as a, a, a biblical justification for never allowing divorce. And Master was completely um, dismissed that as, a, as having no relevance at all. That he said many marriages, as he said, are nothing more than a bow tie and a nice shade of lipstick. <laughs> He says it's not really a soul union of any kind. And God is not, I mean, he didn't say this, but it was not really joined by God. It may have been sanctified by a priest, but that doesn't mean it was joined by God. It was just a a more or less superficial connection. But he then went on to say in that particular passage that just like everything else in creation, the human soul is also dual. And that there is, every, every soul has an opposite. A complementary is a better way to say it. And before we attain a complete liberation, those two halves come together. And, but Master went on to say, um, it, it, you know, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with romance, especially not with sexuality, by definition, because sexuality is a physical compulsion. And, you know, in the astral world, it doesn't even exist, which is why one of my friends said, how could they call it heaven? (laughs) But that seemed a rather small perspective, so I didn't bother to respond. But uh, you can't, if you're talking about soul union for God realization, 
gender is forgotten, physical compulsions are forgotten. This is just not what we're talking about. We're talking about something so subtle on, on such a level. Master said, um, your, your, your soulmate could be on another planet and you could just have that um, match come in vision. You know, you don't even have to be present. I mean, there's also the thought, can, do you have to both be liberated at the same time? Can one, one be liberated before? There's lots of questions, but Master didn't answer any of them, Swami said, because he knew if he gave any energy to the subject, everybody's focus, which, Jan, would you open the other side too so we can get some cross? Um, the, uh, everybody's attention would immediately shift from, from God to in search of their soulmate, and it's, it's difficult enough to have keep people's minds on the real object of the game without making it worse. But nonetheless, Swami was always interested in it. He just he, he, And he would talk about it periodically from some experiences he had himself and just other, other things that just was in his mind. And then that last book was about the subject. Now, I was thinking it from this point of view because oh, what's on the back cover of that book is uh, something Swami said to me. I I, I, it, it's either on the back or the inside, it doesn't matter. But I wrote this conversation that we had where Swami just brought up the subject and said, if every desire that we have has to be fulfilled before we can have God realization, which is something Master said, um, and God, he said, God would not plant a desire in our hearts that he did not also intend to fulfill. Because it, it, it wouldn't occur to you to want it if it wasn't somewhere in creation. And then Swami spoke, as he often did, very mm, compassionately about this, this deep need people feel for love. And, and really, as he said, we want to be loved personally. He said, not merely abstractly by God. And Swami was so human in his understanding. And so he put it like that. And he said, so because that desire is so deep in everyone, he said, it, it, there must be a reality to this because it, it's rarely fulfilled in human life. That's not to say that uh, individuals don't have life partners and have deep friendships, whether romantic or otherwise, you know, with, with, your, with your spouse, with your sisters, with your brothers, with your friends. I've been part of Ananda for 40, more than 40 years, and many, many people have been, I've walked this path with many friends with whom, you know, I just can't imagine having a closer human connection. Um, it just, it's just as real as it gets, with real nobility and, and real, mm, uh, not emotionalism, but just the fact of absolute loyalty and friendship. It's really one of the greatest gifts of the spiritual life, after the spiritual life itself. Um, but at the same time, even the best of friends, one always has this slight feeling that, you know, there's always the time when they don't quite understand. It just happens. Who, who, can, who can completely understand one another? You can have the best will in the world, but we're just, no one ever completely. We're just too unusual, each of us. And there's always that, there's still that little bit of a, a pull. So, everything that happens in a, material or a human way is always a, a, a reflection Swamiji has told us the whole, the whole of creation is there to remind us and gradually guide us toward inner spiritual realities 
So we, we have this, almost everyone does, this degree of inner restlessness, whether, we, um, whether it comes down all the way to the level of the sexual compulsion, which if you're in the human body, it's for most people somewhere it's there. It varies enormously in how people relate to it, but there's something that compels you. As Swamiji said, once people make such a, uh, a big deal, he said, out of sexual energy, he said it's a physical compulsion. He said like being hungry or like being cold. You know, it's just something that your body imposes upon you and it pushes you in a certain direction. And the whole of spiritual life is to gradually master all compulsions. And we, we, we train our willpower and develop our discrimination by doing battle with those compulsions, whatever they might be. And because the sexual compulsion is so forceful, it becomes a, a, a lion that people wrestle with. But here he's giving advice to the monks, so they've obviously made a certain decision in regard to that, that they're going to transcend it rather than go through it. Um, but, uh, and I'd, I'd said earlier about that, where I've read it in several places, that it's the first thing that just pushes us out of, outside of ourselves to find, well, union is how people always think about it. You, you sort of, the physical bodies always remain separate, so you do your very best to try to overcome that separateness, however temporarily, but in the end, you always have to separate again because we are separate. So even it's symbolic, it's perfectly symbolic that the union cannot last. And so then there's always that hunger again. Because of course what we're looking for is, is union with God. But interestingly, Master just put in this little thought that that other union, that other more personal union, is also part of how we liberate ourselves. I, I, you know, it's, it's just a fascinating idea. And then Swami mentioned that in this one conversation. And we, we talked about it a little bit, but he himself, on this subject, he would often go shrug his shoulders because he himself couldn't take it any farther than just speculation. And this seems sensible to him. So I was sort of meditating on all of the different aspects of this. If in fact, as now Master and Swamiji have both confirmed, that that inner desire, that really deep inner desire to be personally loved, is God-given and will be God-fulfilled. So some part of what pushes us in that direction is part of our, is part of our natural heritage. I mean, our natural spiritual heritage, I don't know how else to put it. Um, but inasmuch as so often on the spiritual path, we're at least cautioned toward moderation, and assuming a celibate life is, is a, a, a time-honored tradition in religious life for extremely good reasons. It's a, 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 it's a very, very positive spiritual practice. I've been a, a, sanya, a brahmacharini and a sannyasi now at both ends of my life, so I've done it young and I've done it old, and all I can say is it's a really good idea. It's just really a very good idea, and it has extremely solid spiritual basis for it. It's not for most people, but nonetheless, that's the life. Now, so, but the union with the soulmate is nothing that you can go out questing. And that's why Master really didn't want to bring it up, because 
by its very nature, if you're pushing away from your center, you, you, can't, you can't end up in the right place. You see? So it has to be something that instead is magnetized to you from your inner reality. And so I've been just trying to feel, I mean, I talk to you, lots of you at different times, about my thoughts about, for me at least, the inevitability I feel of incarnating in another body unless when I leave this one, surprise, surprise, <laughs> they tell me it's all done, but I'm not counting on it. So I'm, I'm hedging my bet <laughs> by considering what it would be like to, to have a young body again. And I reflect on some of the more idiotic things I did during my... Um, callow youth and hoping to, to so I think about this I think about the uh, compulsion I had as a teenager and as a you know as a young woman uh, I, I just you know I wanted to marry I wanted to have a boyfriend I just all those things that everybody wants at least in America if you grow up as I did you just sort of want that and how it just kept pushing me outside myself and many not many, but a number of times, especially when I was a teenager, I just made really stupid decisions based on just being swept up in all that energy, just completely pulled off center and made really stupid decisions. Fortunately, nothing that was even notable will hardly get a footnote in my life review, but they were dumb decisions in any case because I was pushed outside of myself. So I've been just trying to tune into the difference between being compelled to seek some kind of satisfaction and actually attracting to you because of your inner magnetism fulfillment. And even whether that fulfillment is less than perfect union with your soulmate, you know, maybe it is your destiny in this life to have a partner and, you know, be a householder. But the difference between being forced to do it and attracting it from your inner magnetism. I mean, that, that, those are the, the nuances that I've been trying to just sort of uh, find without, I mean, I can't speak to this definitively. I mean, I, I feel that I have been in my life compelled a great deal in, in many different directions. And I, I remember at one point just saying, I hope that God approves of this because, you know, I don't have really have a choice. My desires are stronger than my restraint. And I'm just hoping that this is, you know, it's not going to prove catastrophic. Unfortunately, nothing in my life has. But rather than say, this is what my life must look like, what I'm seeking is those understandings that would allow me to magnetize to myself what I need rather than be compelled to go out and grab it. You see the difference? And I mean, of all the ways that you can talk about sexuality, there's a million ways you can talk about it, but... You know, for most people, through the middle of their lives at least, um, celibacy is not an option. As Swami said, in this society especially, it's really not an option. That doesn't mean it's not highly desirable. It just means that it's a challenge and it's not the way for most people. And sometimes the, the too much focus on that energy um, doesn't serve you spiritually. It's much easier just to be natural and moderate in your life rather than too stern. But of course, Master was talking to monks. And they'd made a strong decision. He says, I know many of you are weak. And so there you are. It's just the way you are. Then, then Swami adds into this about Kachari Mudra, which is turning the tongue back and slipping it up 
into the nasal passages, which is something we practice in Kriya, and it's a, you can practice it in Kriya, and it's a, an ancient technique, and it's peculiar seeming, but everything external also has an inner counterpart. So it's also just, it's extremely fascinating to realize that that which the average man or woman just takes as a necessary outward reality actually is completely already uh, contained within us. I mean, it's just remarkable uh, when you get into the more esoteric aspects of the path uh, how God has made us and how the yogis just piece by piece have just unraveled this and then articulated it for us. Ever and again through your awakened sons the answer comes. Um, these are not things that uh, you stand on a soapbox in Central Park and start talking about. Uh, but when he was talking to the monks in his ashram, he could say, now you have the tools in front of you. If these are the things that are, you know, if you've made these resolutions, here's how you work with your energy. This is what you need to do. And there's this strange thing that it's always difficult until it's actually happened to you in one way or another. As, as Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi said, you should never give up a pleasure until you have replaced it with a higher pleasure. In other words, you, suppression is when you really think it's wonderful, but you've just decided you can't have it, sort of energy, where it's nothing but self-denial, a kind of martyred self-denial. That's quite different, even if you're having to fight to discipline yourself, to an aware understanding that this is actually a better life for me. It's just, this is just a better life for me. And even if it isn't always effortless, it's a better life for me. And having been in this brahmachari sannyas stage twice in my life, you know, when I took it when I was younger, in my 20s, it was just like, this was a better life for me. I could just feel it. It was just the life that I, I wanted. And it wasn't effortless by any means. And in the end, I got married. But nonetheless, during that 10-year period, it was... It wasn't, nobody was depriving me of anything. You know, home, family, for a woman, it's much more than just sexuality, but the whole caboodle, kitten caboodle, it, uh, it didn't look like fun to me. <laughs> and if it doesn't look like fun to you, that's not like such a, if it looks like fun to you, then you have to work with your mind and work with your heart to figure out really where you belong. One of the things that happened in Ananda history I think I mentioned it a little last week, but about 1980, 81, the monasteries at Ananda just got just huge. It was just like everybody was in the monastery and only about this many of the people who were in there actually belonged there. There were about this many who knew it was the right life for them and, it was a, and they wanted that life. The rest of them were there because they thought they ought to want that life. And Ananda was just getting completely twisted. And Swamiji was very concerned about it. And when he prayed to Master, he said, Master, I've set the example for everything in this, but you know we need examples of spiritual marriage. And Master said to him in his meditation, you could set the example. Swami's response was, Sir, I'm a monk. <laughs> and Master's inner response to him was, that doesn't matter anymore. Swami later wrote, he said, I became a monk in order to establish God first in my life. He said, but now God is established as first in my life. So marriage or not marriage doesn't matter. That's what he felt. 
that's what he felt Master doing. So in the end, Swami got married, and for about 12 years, he wasn't a sannyasi. From some of that, he was married, and some of that, he was single, and then he took it up again. But it was uh, because monasticism was getting twisted within our community. It wasn't really because I feel freer in this life. And instead of people becoming freer and freer, they were becoming more and more confined, which was just exceedingly unwholesome. And when Swami made the decision um, to get married, to take a partner, he said because he felt inwardly guided to do it. And what happened in the community was kind of, I don't know, like if you pull the bottom brick out of something and the whole pile kind of shakes down. Well, it's sort of like he raised the question, he, he raised the thought to us that we should act according to what we feel inwardly guided to do, not according to the form that we think is the best one. And it just flipped, and, and then the whole monastery just disintegrated, basically, at that point, and has only reconvened in the last decade. Because it was not coming from a sincere place, the right place. Now, sexuality itself is not something, I mean, that you can just dictate on your own, because it being a partnership, if you don't have a partner, you get to be celibate whether you want to be or not. So sometimes it's imposed upon you, and it's nice to have a philosophy that makes it okay. <laughs> and sometimes it's chosen, because this is, this is where we are. You know, life gives you exactly what you're supposed to have. I know Nanda Moyama, who never made any decisions at all in her own life, but just energy would flow through her. She had no relationship to it. And she, she was married when she was a girl, but her husband approached her on their wedding night and immediately realized that was a terrible mistake. So she was perfectly virgin and celibate through her whole life, and someone asked her about that. And she responded, this body has done, I mean, I don't have the words exactly right, so I'll give you the meaning. This body has served as, as an example of what is necessary as a human being so apparently that is not necessary as a human being. That was her complete response. Just apparently that's not needed, <laughs> you know, for a happy, fulfilling, appropriate human life. Which was just, was just a very interesting, because she had such a, an impersonal way of relating to this body, as she called it. It's very interesting to hear that, which is comforting. So, any comments or thoughts on that before we move on to wine, intoxicants? Okay. Yes. Uh, where the, the could somebody hand her the microphone, please? So you're saying that this desire for a soulmate continues into the astral world if a person, you know, finishes, or is it just really part of physical karma? No, Master's talking about full, complete liberation. And if you're united in vision and your, bot, your, your, your soul might be on another planet or in the astral world, then it's beyond, way beyond physical. I mean, I'm just quoting. I don't know anything about it. I just find it fascinating. For, for me, what I've been trying to work with is, you know, to, to actually uh, know yourself is not so easy. And, you know, to, to both have the courage, the clarity of mind, uh, just the calmness, to just be able to be yourself. I mean, Swamiji was utterly relaxed and, and without the slightest either pretense or defensiveness or embarrassment about anything. 
You know, he, he, he would just talk about anything in the most relaxed and easy way. It's just whatever he was, he was. And he had a tremendous self-knowledge because there was nothing he was afraid to know. And so often in our desire to cope, we, we don't really know what's really motivating us. And we, we assume attitudes that are... We assume them because we feel we have to have them or we need them to survive. And, and to actually just stop everything enough to know what you really feel. And Swami just commenting that about the soulmates, it's like, it's just so interesting to me. Where is that in me? You know, what is that? In, and I, that's, where I, that's where I'm coming to with all of this. So no, I don't think it's just about the material body. I think it's about the way we're made. That's why the, the union is so subtle and so interesting. Uh, yes, questions over here? What did I say? I said that's why the connection with soulmates is so subtle and so interesting because it isn't really, has nothing to do with life as we know it, as far as I can see. There's also that story in, um, is it an autobiography of a yogi or is it in the path about the monk who was restless and his guru said, God's going to give you a gift today. And the monk was on a, a train going this way and there was a train going this way that stopped at the station and he looked and he saw a woman in the car over here who, abs who so perfectly epitomized his ideal of, of feminine perfection. He looked at her, the train went on and all his, he was completely at peace at that point. And Swami, in some context, referred to that story as that must have been that kind of connection. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how um, at peace you are in your heart, but still he magnetized that much of a connection. Fascinating, isn't it? Yes, uh, uh, Ekavir behind you. The, the passage about Pichari Mudra being achieving physically that inner union that say that it could replace that sense of satisfaction physically apparently apparently i mean it's it's the male half looking for the female half it's you know there's a whole uh, science you know of sexuality uh, and and it and the Indian side of things talks about, it, but it's not, it's not what people in the West imagine it to be. But there's a science to everything, and if you get very impersonal about it, you can speak about it. But there's just that longing for male and female to unite, and so male and female can unite right within one body, whether it's male or female. And so, what what the Kichari Mudra does, as they describe, as he describes it, I can't speak about it myself, but is uh, it it just brings you to a state of contentment. I mean, you're not pushed outside yourself. I mean, see, that's what it all, that's why sexuality is the beginning of all delusion. That's how they describe it, because you're just, you have to, you have to seek outside yourself because you're restless inside and you're trying to seek some kind of peace outside yourself. But if you can just be within yourself and feel that peace, then why would you ever move from there? And it it, uh, Swamiji says it tastes like you, you have a taste like, like uh, milk and honey 
So, and that's in the uh, in Old Testament. They were seeking the land of milk and honey. It's a very esoteric reference. Yes. Talking about Kachari Mudra, apparently at the village they have um, a month-long practice of actually elongating your tongue mm-hmm. so that you could actually practice the um, mudra. And in fact, they have groups that meet to practice Kachari. Just, yeah, then. exactly. So. No, it's worth, it's worth working on. I mean, the benefits of it are great. Yeah, there you have it. And it's, you know, it's a bit on the weird side for most Westerners. And there you have it. <laughs> These days, anybody who's watching this anywhere can just Google it, and you can see the whole story there, so I don't have to really say a lot. But there it is. There's just a lot of st- very strange things. I mean, there's many more strange things, but uh, mostly they're not t- talked about, and I don't talk about them because I don't know them. But I'm sure they're all there. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? So, now, oh, wait, we don't have to read anymore. Now about wine. So I, I don't remember what I said about money last week, but I'm sure it was interesting. <laughs> and now I've just spoken about sexuality, so I can't recap what I said. And uh, I, I do my best to forget as soon as possible. Can you imagine if I was replaying the tapes? I would be absolutely, I'd be mad. I'd be even more mad than I am. Okay, wine. Wine is a very, very interesting one because wine is the belief that if I can reduce my awareness and lower my energy, I will have an actual cessation of pain and an increase of happiness. That's what it represents. So you don't have to ever, you can be a complete teetotaler and still be subject to this delusion. And uh, it's, it's we, we sort of grow up, I mean, spiritually speaking, we just have this thought. And so many people, they're always looking to rest. You know, people want to retire, they want to get home from work, or they want to get the kids out of the house, or they want to finally get enough money. But there's just this thought in my mind that my, if I could just rest, I would be happier. In other words, if I could reduce the demands upon me, especially if I could reduce my energy level. And also, people just don't want to know. And so we drink, which is, a, a, you know, intoxicants, is really good. We take drugs. We eat too much. We sleep too much. And nowadays, you can just watch television or turn on your devices and literally long periods of time will go by in which nothing will be asked of you. You know, we watch television. I think that's such an interesting phrase. Let's watch television. Well, you know, if you, if you just think about it, you just sit there and you watch this and you see children too when you put children in front of television as they say you know they they behave in a way they never behave at any other time they just become completely uh, you know all their restlessness just goes away all their energy goes away in fact but all their curiosity everything it just it just it, it just it's an intoxicant and that's why it's a wonderful babysitter when you're just you've had it trying to just keep up with this endless outward moving energy of children you just put them in front of an entertainment screen it all stops they just become drugged like it I I read this this was years ago before all of the individual screens but this family this man they were highly educated people and but their son started having a very difficult time in school he was about third grade just you know he just wasn't behaving and he wasn't learning and 
the uh, uh, parents just had the intuition that it was the television. They just, this was before there was a lot written about this. They just intuitively knew it. So their children came home, and their children were accustomed to watching quite a lot of television. This is all like old school now. Nobody talks in the same way now because you have the little iPads and everything. Um, but the children came home from school one day, and the television was gone. And he said, not unplugged, not in the garage. <laughs> they said, gone. They just took it away. He said, for one month, their children behaved like heroin addicts going through withdrawal. They just, you know, they were having emotional fits. They were having physical problems. They were having sleeplessness. And he said it was, it was quite intense. And they were, you know, frantic. He said, and then after a month, they, it started to subside. And then they started behaving like children. They started being creative. They started reading. They started playing outside. Com school problems completely disappeared. You know, it was just, they were drugged. And, because, and also because they were drugged, you know, what happens when you have a drug is that you want to have it again. So, and other things, one of my friends who used to work with a lot of the teenagers and um, the kids, as people do in our society, though, Master says, Master says, don't ever even take a sip of alcoholic beverage. He said, not a sip. You have no idea what some scars you have. He said, you may have been an alcoholic in the past and that one simple just to awaken it like that. People think it doesn't matter. Master was very strict. He said, just don't ever even, don't give yourself the chance because you just don't know. But uh, let's see what, uh, what was I going to say there? I lost the thought. Oh yes, the, teen, the teenagers were doing a little of this and a little of that and he was more sort of trying to walk the line and they said how much how much is too much he said when you have a really fun experience and you think how much more fun this would have been if we were stoned <laughs> in other words if you now start measuring what's enjoyable in terms of how much you have drugged your consciousness if you're no longer able to just experience your own consciousness it was, an, it was a very interesting and uh, a thoughtful way to offer it to the kids instead of just saying yes or no. But that's what happens is that when, when you, you find this sort of shortcut to relief of pain, this goes with the relief of pain side. I mean, I know, certainly speaking for myself, you know, there's just times when the desire to get out of my own consciousness is so intense. I mean, I've talked about this in these classes at different times. It's just one of my little stories you know I, my, my mental world is my intense world and uh, not that I have done it in a long time but suicide and madness I mean these are things that people do when their inner world becomes so intense and I, those are my particular threads but you know just that desire just to not have to deal with whatever it is and, and if you find that Boy, that wine will do it, the beer will do it, the heroin will do it, the television will do it, the promiscuity will do it, whatever will just stop it. It's very addictive. It's actually the only word for it. Because you think, if I become unaware, then I'll become better. But of course, the problem is, whatever it is that you're trying to run away from doesn't leave just because you close your eyes to it. It's as simple as that. I've joked with you all about, you know, I have these radio microphones and I use a, a little belt with a pocket. So 
is to be able to wear them. And when I would travel, sometimes I would, you know, arrive at the hall and whoever was my video guy, like Brian was often, he would hand me the microphone and it would be under this dress. And sometimes I'd have to sort of pull up the, the tunic. I mean, I have a pair of trousers on, there's nothing, but it's very undignified. And I just never liked doing it, so I would always close my eyes. <laughs> And I did it for a long, long time before I realized I would, wherever I'd be standing, I mean, I wouldn't stand in front, I'd stand in the back, but I'd just close my eyes while I did it because I couldn't see it anyway because I thought somehow then nobody else could see me. <laughs> but just the little mind just playing a little trick. This is an embarrassing situation. I'll try to become less aware of it. Just bingo like that. That's what wine is about. And of course, it gets horrible when you have actually gotten your body chemistry all snarled up in that. But it's, a, it's something that we have to fight all the time. It's one of the three major delusions. It's just we want to be able to escape suffering and the only way to escape suffering is to transcend it with higher awareness. We have to just see it from a higher perspective. And it's not, it's not as if the issue, whatever it is, as big as your fist, actually changes it's just, you know, when you're, when you're obsessed with something, it's just right there and there's nothing else you can deal with. It stays the same, but your energy gets bigger around it. You know, this, there are many, many painful, tragic, unbearable things that happen on this plane of consciousness that happen to each of us, that we have inflicted upon others. I mean, there, there are things that there is no, nothing that can make that beautiful. So it's not like you can make it okay. It isn't okay. But what you do is you just see it bigger like that. That's all. Just today, Karen and I were out for a walk, and this woman comes, she's pushing a baby carriage, and it's interesting, we, we, both of us picked up the vibe before we really knew. And there was a child a little larger for, than the baby carriage, seemed a little bit large for that, and I noticed the child had her mouth open. And the closer we got, we saw that this child had some kind of, I don't know, oxygen, medical devices. Clearly, maybe the baby was two. And this is a child with really serious physical, neurological issues. And you could, it was almost like the mother just, you know, dared us to have an opinion. I mean, you know, defied us, how, you know, don't have an opinion. You could just feel, it was very, it was very, um, and you know what could you do here's the karma just walking right by you the mother and the child were just on a sidewalk I just tried to be cordial um, but you know you also you take it in really fast and you really realize what's going on there's no way to make that oh it's all so lovely it's all God's will I mean she might have shot me if I'd said isn't this nice God has given you this wonderful test oh your little karma isn't it nice to see it I mean those are horrible things to say it's just everything about it was almost more than you could do. How do you, how do you deal with that? You have to get bigger. You have to see this as one incarnation and one very complicated karmic debt that's being paid. It's the only way. If you just drink, you just wake up in the morning and there it is again. If you rail against God, you wake up in the morning and there it is again. If you make airy-fairy affirmations, it just keeps pounding on you until you can't hold that anymore. And so we have to always be, you know, always be moving with that. It's, it's, um, wine is really everything on the spiritual path, whether you drink or not. 
I mean, drinking and that sort of thing for me is long in the past, but I can, I can understand it. I can just see why people do it. And the real problem with it is, it doesn't work. It's just as simple as that. It doesn't bring you what you want. If it worked, that would be great. But it doesn't. And everybody step by step on the spiritual path just has to go through that. And that's the good news. wonder what the next one is. <laughs> My voice is going too soft tonight. Okay. Oh, this one's not working. Pardon me? Oh, they're using this one up here? Okay. Well, then this one isn't working. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, any, any other questions or thoughts? Right above us? Okay. All right. I'll try not to keep letting my voice drop. But I forget. Okay, the eighth point in this one. He says, don't waste time on distractions, reading too much and so on. Reading can be good if it is instructive and inspiring. But if you let it interfere with meditation, it becomes an evil Read only a little bit to find inspiration, but spend most of your time in meditative silence. Consider this. Every day, 100 books, more or less, are published. You couldn't read them all if you wanted to. No one, no matter how brilliant, could absorb more than a tiny fraction of the knowledge available. Scientists often pride themselves on their knowledge, but can they explain how even a simple leaf was created? Why stuff your head with other people's discoveries anyway? That is all one accomplishes by reading all the time. I always say, if you read one hour, then write two hours, think three hours, and meditate all the time. It's very demanding instruction. You know, to me, the kind of... Well, he's talking about two kinds of reading here. And he also mentions distractions, but then he passes right over to reading. You know, it's the same. Distractions are also a little bit like wine. I, I myself, uh, I, I have to be realistic. If you, if you, if you get too, uh, if you push yourself too hard, you will end up losing everything. Swamiji was asked once, how much discipline is enough discipline? And he said, that which you can do joyfully. He said, as soon as it becomes grim, he said, loosen the screws a little bit, back up, until you can embrace it joyfully. And when I was speaking, and joyfully doesn't mean that you're always happy about it, but that inside your heart you know what you're doing and it's okay. And that was the same thing I was saying earlier about the monastery back in those early years. It's like, for, for some people, that kind of limitation, there was a sense of freedom in it. Disciplining yourself to a certain limitation made you feel bigger and freer and not smaller and confined. So with all of the instructions on the spiritual path, if, if you keep adding things that make you feel more and more confined, that you're, you're going in the wrong direction, it's very subtle because by no means, and there was a very, very popular um, spiritual, I'll put that in quote, teacher in the 70s and 80s, and Ananda perfectly summarized his teaching. Just do whatever you feel like doing, but we'll just call it spiritual. And he had hundreds, thousands of followers. I mean, what a great teaching. You could drink, you could be promiscuous, you could just have lots of money, you could do anything, but God is everything. I mean, it, it was presented 
as a spiritual teaching. It was just garbage. But So you don't want to go there. <laughs> but at the same time, if everything in the world becomes evil, um, it, then uh, you, you just can't move. And you will end up off the spiritual path, or literally you'll lose your mental balance. So, uh, for example, I remember when we did the dedication ceremony for our community in 1989. Um, we made up this uh, dance to Swami's chant of Sri Gurudeva Om, which turned out to be an extremely unfortunate choice. He'd just written that chant. And we made up this dance that we thought, we had all like 20 couples out there. We, we did all this. We thought it was just so terrific and we were so proud of it. And we performed it for Swamiji and he was conspicuously silent on the point after he watched it. And then afterwards, we were in the house and I asked him what he thought. The first thing he said rather plaintively was essentially, why did you choose that chant? As soon as he said it, I understood. It was a very sacred inward chant and we were cavorting on the lawn and it just was, for him, it was, how could you possibly have interpreted this chant in that way? It was just, and it did the instant he said it, it, it with him it was so funny because I would a lot of times in my life, I would just do something that seemed like such a good idea. But then his vibration would enter and it was like I would wake up out of sleep. And I, I couldn't understand. I could have been so blind. This is one of those moments, you know. I could ever have made me think that was a good idea. We should have done, you know, just anything but that. So that was the beginning of it. Then the second part of it was he... He was very concerned, and he, he was always attentive to this. He never really wanted, he, he wanted to be sure we never diluted our essential spiritual practice. You know, Kriya Yoga, silent meditation, even, even chanting that doesn't also include meditation at different times, he said, the point is silence. All of, everything that you do is to get you into that stillness and that experience. So he was concerned a little bit about the dancing from that point of view. He didn't want it to become our sat. I said, and that, so I understood that. I said, oh no, Swamiji, I'm not thinking of it as sadhana. I'm not even thinking of it as spiritual. I said, if we weren't out on the lawn cavorting to the music, we might be at home watching movies. I said, that's the exchange I'm talking about. Oh, he said, then it's fine. <laughs> but that's sort of how we have to understand it. So when I think in terms of distractions... It's not an option for me to be serious all the time. It's just not an option. You know, I just, my brain is too tightly wired. It has to have its moments. So I just try to go on the spectrum, both in, in time and in quality. Just like how I don't want to fall. There's always a, a top and a bottom to what you're doing. So, and how much time you spend on it. And, and the others, then that's where reading comes in, recreational reading is what I always call it. And I have, I have suffered from TMN, too many novels. <laughs> and at different times I go cold turkey. And mostly I try not to read novels, but every so often life is too much. And unfortunately with the Kindle, you can always access something. That's the good and the bad news about the Kindle. It's always there. But I'm, I'm honest about it. That's the best you can be. But you, just, you really just need to watch yourself. It, this, it's, just, it's a drug. Here I am, and which way is my energy going to go? Am I going to take it down into lower awareness or up into higher awareness? And is there a compromise point? Can I read inspiring books? Then he talks about reading it, reading on another level where people feel the need to keep up. 
you know, just this somehow like this, this uh, avaricious need almost to just be informed, just to be informed and to know what all the latest things are. And again, it's, a, it's a, a, an outward moving energy that imagines it will be satisfied. And Master just speaks of the folly of that. I remember when my mother was at the end of her life, uh, we never really had any serious philosophical discussions. It just wasn't in her nature. But at one point I asked her how she felt about dying. And her answer was so adorable. Oh, I just hate to think of all this going on and my not being part of it anymore. I thought, well, that's, that's a perspective, isn't it? <laughs> but that's how, you know, she was interested in the presidential election and just all that. And that's what Master was talking about. There's hundreds of books written. You'll never understand them all. Don't just get this idea in your mind that knowledge itself is going to give you something. Information is going to give you something. It's not. You have to take whatever you do know. And that's what he says. You know, think, meditate. Meaning, make whatever, whatever you're doing, make it your inner reality rather than just accumulating it from the outside. That's, what, that's the point he's trying to make. So, let's take a short break and then if you have any questions, we'll take them before we go on. Um, I was asked a question that I think is worth repeating out loud was between, you know, being too constrained and cutting yourself a little slack, I mean, which is better? Swamiji always said it was better, I mean, the worst thing you can do, and it's even in the Bhagavad Gita, is, is suppression. And suppression, remember, is when you, you really think it's good and you really want it, but you're just not going to let yourself have it. It's different than a conscious understanding of, of the discipline you're undergoing. It's a subtlety, but you have to see it. But if you just suppress things and you actually still believe that they would make you happy, but you just can't have them, um, as the energy always just twists inside of you and shoots out in some other direction. And, and if it's... I mean, this is a huge psychological thing that everybody knows about. If, it's, if your energy is too suppressed, it comes out in some un, seemingly unrelated way in which it doesn't make any sense and you can't really figure out where it's coming from and you don't really know what you're upset about and you haven't transcended anything. You've just twisted things up and made it even harder. Even if you're behaving badly or, or wrongly in the sense of you're not acting in your own best interest, at least the energy is moving it's right in front of you, you understand what's going on, and you can actually just sort of see cause and effect at work and gradually redirect it. Yeah, Swami was talking about emotions, and at, at Ananda especially, generally speaking, we're, we're more restrained in our emotional expression, and that time we were on the border of suppression, this was all the same period of time, where people just, they just couldn't. They didn't, they couldn't, they were, you know, even couples, they, nobody was affectionate even. It was just very, very stiff. And he said it's far better to be over-emotional than to, than to be, the phrase he used was self-censoring, where you're just always not allowing yourself to be for the same reason that one, you just, the energy is not expressed in one way, but it's not really transcended, so it just shoots out somewhere else and you have no idea what's really happening. And again, even if you're over-emotional, at least you're trying. At least you're trying to understand what's happening, who you are, and then you can see it. And you'll feel the consequences of it, and then you can gradually move it. That was a hard thing for, for him to get across, because we were all 
uh, sort of, you know, suppressed monastics who had you know, just learned to behave, but there was no freedom inside. We, we had just learned to behave, and learning to behave is far from being free. And you can't do it unless you know what, you, what you're dealing with. And so sometimes it's, sometimes it's embarrassing, really. But there you have it. I'm, I've never been very good at... Well, no, I've been quite good at suppression. <laughs> I've been good at all of it. Name the delusion. I'm a master of it. You know, we all are. It's just the way it is. Was there anything else to that? I think that was it. Any other questions or comments about what we were dealing with? You know, there's another aspect to money that I don't think I mentioned, but it just needs to be said, which is sometimes people, it's not really money itself that they become attached to. It's the power that money gives you. And so it, it, sometimes people will say, I'm not, you know, I'm not that interested in money, but money can also give you a certain power over other people or over circumstances or power over your own life. And you can think that money doesn't attach, attract you, but in your mind the money gives you the power and the power is what attracts you. And so it's just, there's just very subtle ways in which this works. And a power is not something that people, you don't see it as much. It's somehow it's, our family doesn't seem as inclined that way. That's partly because Swamiji is so humble. It's just so humble and he trained us so, um, just so much away from that kind of self-aggrandizement. So you don't see it as much in our community. But it's an interesting... Um, I, I, when we were all very, very poor, and I talked about this the last time, about, you know, money... Not having money takes away all your options. You, you, you become quite powerless without money. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to just sort of watch all the implications of it, or the degree to one thinks that one has to have money to have power. I, I just wanted to put those words out there because I'm not really sure that I had so far. So, any other questions or comments before we go scooting on? So, now we are up to, no matter how much the organization keeps me busy, Master was speaking, I never forego my daily tryst with God. Faithfully, I practice Kriya Yoga and meditate. This is Master's last advice to the monks, is you've, you've got to keep up your meditation practice. And he's, it's not only that he's speaking about the meditation and practice itself and the power of Kriya Yoga to overcome the vrittis, which will in itself free you of all the other things that are bothering you. Because all of the attachments that I was just talking about or the impulses, the restless impulses that move us out from ourselves are just the vrittis in the spine moving. And it's, it's, a, it's, so, um, it's so exact that the movement of those vrittis is what makes us unable to be still inside ourselves. We, we try to become silent, we try to meditate, and then all of these energies start just making our consciousness jerk in one way or another. And the practice of Kriya, particularly, or a meditation technique like that, dissolves those vrittis directly. So you're, you're, we're struggling on the outside to, to keep that karma from compelling us, those, those unresolved desires from compelling us into actions we don't want. But if we're also 
practicing our meditation regularly, in it, to some extent, we're burning the seeds of karma. So it, it's kind of like, a, I always think of it as a, a drag race, you know, like in the teenage movies where you rum rum and you have these two cars and you have, you know, your spiritual practices are one and your, the karma that's take, wanting to take you in the wrong direction is the other and they, they go like this and if you just keep, you know, eventually the, the positive one's going to get ahead and this one's going to be left in the dust. But they do fight like this a lot. The other thing about daily meditation, well, there's a million things about daily meditation, but another aspect, and it's very subtle, it's like when you lose that divine connection, you don't even know that you've lost it because you've lost it. And so you can't, you can't remember what you don't have anymore. And a whole other way of looking at life begins to make sense to you. When you're, when you're in that divine vibration, and meditation is among the ways, in a very important way, in which we align ourselves continually and just bathe in that pulse. But it's so subtle. It's such a subtle way of being that when we um, neglect it too long and, and we don't renew that, we don't even know that we don't have it anymore. And, and then the world just begins to look to us a certain way and we just start making decisions and those decisions seem to make sense to us. In all the years that I've been essentially in standing in one place in relation to Ananda, I mean being in Ananda and just standing in Ananda since I've never left it, a lot of people have gone, come and gone like this and I've watched them. And it's, it's always like that. There's just this, the phrase we use, you just get a little out of tune with it. And once you're a little out of tune with the spiritual thing that's holding you, then you start getting in tune with all sorts of other things. And whereas they never looked attractive to you when you were vibrating here, all of a sudden they start matching. Whether it's preoccupations that will take you farther away, or interests, or desires, or relationships, or annoyances with what you used to enjoy, boredom, with what used to inspire you. You know, people will say, well, it just doesn't inspire me like it used to. That's very common. But it doesn't inspire you like you, it used to because you're no longer in the vibration. So yeah, well, you, you stand, you're vibrating differently and you stand in the vibration that used to match you and nothing happens anymore. So just all these you know, ways in which you just have to keep, is, and, and you grow, you learn to grow suspicious when, when your mind starts giving you ideas that you didn't used to have in terms of, uh, oh, <laughs> well, this was, this was not exactly that, but this man came to me once. Sometimes people say the darndest things to me. It's really a lot of fun, actually. He came and he sat down in front of me once and he said, uh, you know, a lot of people find you inspiring, but I don't. <laughs> and my response was, he lived in this community. I said, oh, you, he said, he said, I, I just, I really, when you talk, I just, I just feel nothing, he said. <laughs> I said, you poor man, I talk all the time. <laughs> he was sort of so disarmed by my, just like, oh, it must be awful for you. But it's like your mind, I mean, not that you need to feel that I'm inspiring, you're sitting in this room, so apparently it's not too much of a misery. 
But when your mind starts telling you things that you used to have a different thought. Oh, I used to like Swami's music, but now I've grown bored with it. You know, I used to like to come to the uh, morning meditations, but now, you know, I just, I just really don't enjoy them like I used to. I mean, that's what people will say. I don't enjoy them like I used to. And they'll, they'll see that to mean that somehow they've gone on from it, or... But you have to be very suspicious of your mind when it starts justifying your pulling back. Pulling back from immersing yourself in the vibration. And when you meditate every day, and you don't miss your Kriya practice, it's a lot less likely to happen. Because once it's started, it's very hard to stop. And that's when people leave. Leave ashrams, leave monasteries, just, they just leave. And then many years later, I had a man come here. Whew, I, he, he'd been a, a young man at Ananda Village, very bright, um, with a lot of promise. He got involved in a relationship, and not everyone was sure it was the best relationship. And the woman took him off. And then he wandered in here, like what's it been, 40 years later. Wow, he did not look better. I mean, we all age, but he did not look better. But it all just started, just one step at a time, and then one thing led to another, and then there you are. You just you have a clear idea of what you're doing, and when, you, when your mind starts giving you other ideas, be very suspicious. You know, just be very suspicious. Yes, microphone. Just a... Uh one other comment on that last line, how precise it is. He says, faithfully I practice Kriya Yoga and meditate. That's it's just true. a reminder there. You, you don't just sit down and just do your techniques, check it off the list. That's and, a very and good go. point. It, it makes you remember, okay, wait, what is meditation if not Kriya Yoga? And Master said meditation is concentration on God or one of his aspects. So like That's actual exactly right. contact. Right. There, his daily tryst with God is not just the techniques, it's really no. what the techniques are aiming at. Thank you, Tondo. That's an extremely important point. Because what it is when you're meditating is you want to, um, well, you want to, have con- you want to have a tryst with God. I mean, that's what, that's what makes it so worthwhile, is you're just, oh yes, that's right. Here I am again. I'm back, to, I'm back to zero. I can go on from here. Otherwise, I feel like you're just like, I mean, to me, it's like, if you don't meditate, you're just a rock that just keeps rolling down the hill and just keeps rolling. I mean, like, it's, when does it stop? It's very scary. That's what my life felt like before I found the spiritual path. It's exactly what I felt like. It felt like I was just rolling down the hill and where was I going and when would it stop? And then the spiritual path became the tether so that even though the self, you know, it's, it's now it's one of those rubber paddles. You know, that no matter how far that elastic thing goes out, at a certain point, the elastic is stretched as far as it'll go, and then it'll start coming back in. And uh, it can go pretty far. You know, I may go far farther than the stars, (laughs) but if you're tethered. And so when you stop meditating or stop having your daily tryst with God, you can cut that tether inadvertently. And that's when it... I mean, that's a, it's a very scary image. And you, want, you want these images to be extremely terrifying. <laughs> Seriously. You want them to be really just as ghastly as you can possibly imagine. You want to think of every 
terrible thing that could happen to you if you don't um, persevere. I, I mean, I've talked to people so many times and I've talked to myself. Someone was talking to me recently and just, you know, just how awful their karma was. And like, what can I do? Endure. I wish I could give you another answer. I said to someone, your, you know, your, your past karma and your future karma are crossing right where you're standing and it's not pretty. But it's, there's no alternative. And uh, Swamiji has often been asked, you know, what are the keys to, to success on the spiritual path? So you just absolutely realize you have no choice. It's the, there's no wine. There's no way out except through the middle. And then even if it's quite difficult, and unfortunately sometimes it can be, what's the alternative? And daily meditation, since we were talking about that, that's part of what does it. Oh yes, there's another reality, no matter what it seems like, this is where I really live, and this is where I will come back to. I mean, some of the people I admire the most at Ananda are some of the ones who went away for a long time and basically, you know, got run over by quite a few big pieces of machinery and uh, crawled back, but crawled back. You know, just at the end of it, just said, wow, that didn't work. Let me go back to where I started. A lot of times such people are infinitely stronger. Was Ananta talking about that at Spiritual Renewal Week? Someone was talking about the Hound of Heaven and about the man who... Oh, it was you! About the Hound of Heaven and how that man was an opium addict and had a terrible life experience. But at the end of it, he turned it into art. That's what I remember now. He turned it into art. And he turned it into absolute devotion to God. And he knew stronger than most because he'd been so far down. Okay, an easy life is not necessarily a victorious one. I'll take one, but... (laughs) Okay. Some of those who come here, Master says, and later return to the world, go out with a spirit of rejection. After a life of renunciation, they renounce any further spiritual effort. They don't know what they had here. Please, all of you, realize your good fortune how easy the spiritual path is if you give even a little time each day to meditation. Meditate intensely morning and evening. And he's saying the same thing there. Even 15 minutes of meditation is better than no time at all. Better still, make it half an hour or even one hour. Do 108 kriyas, chant Om at the spiritual centers, then listen inwardly to the sounds. If you like, resume your practice of Hong Sa or do Bhakti Yoga, a devotional self-offering to God. Practice watching the breath with Hong Sa in the spine. If you like, go up and down the spine with it instead of watching its flow in the nostrils. Tell your body, if you don't meditate regularly, I will give you a whipping. <laughs> meditate even one and a half hours at a time if you can. Everything you do even if it is only picking up a straw off the ground like Brother Lawrence, offer it mentally to God. If only you will do that, he will reach down and help you. So sweet, isn't it? Also, Master's just running through all the options, isn't it? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, hour and a half, Kriya, Hongsa, yeah, pardon me? Yeah, just this and this and 
Swamiji, I've, I've heard Swamiji when he used to teach meditation classes. He would say, I'll bargain with you. <laughs> five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night. You know, just start somewhere and do something. And then he's running, Master's running like the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, if, if all else fails, then just pick up a straw, but do it with the consciousness of God. I mean, he's, he's talking to these monks and he's, he's trying to help them to understand what they have. Because time and again we come into this and then like the tide we get swept away. And not everyone, as Swami put it once, has what he called lifelong spiritual karma. Sometimes have, people just have a little bit. And it, we used to uh, run, a, when I, we lived in the trailers and we weren't hooked, when I lived in a little tiny travel trailer and we weren't hooked up to any um, utilities of any kind. Um, I had a gas heater and a little gas burner and it was on a, a portable propane tank. Big tanks like this. I call them portable, but it took either some of the men or several of the women to move those things. And they would be set up outside your trailer and you, with nozzles like this. But everything would work until it would suddenly stop working. Um, and often, you know, just it would just stop. You'd just be there in the winter and all of a sudden your heater would go out and that would be that because the tank had just run out and there was nothing you could do. We tried to keep, of course, two, and, but there was always, well, it was just part of life there. The middle of the night, some poor freezing friend of yours comes banging on your door because they need you to help them haul a propane tank down from the top of the hill. And I mean, many a wintry night saw us out there dragging those stupid propane tanks around. But uh, it became an image in my mind because as long as there was gas in the tank, the fire burned. But as soon as the gas went out, the fire just went out. And there, then there was just nothing, sort of nothing you could do. And when Swami would talk about spiritual karma, it, it's, like, it's sort of like that. And I, I don't, sometimes when I say these things, people get real scared. I don't mean to frighten you. But you can just spend it and then it'll be gone. And that's where he's saying, you don't know what you have here. You know, you, you just, one has lots of spiritual opportunities, but you just don't take them. You've had the, the good karma to be brought to a teacher, to a teaching, to a sangha, to a path, to a technique, but you just don't use it. You just squander, you squander the good karma of having been brought by not, but you don't add any more to it. And then the fuel just burns out. And then suddenly you find yourself and you've wandered off. And maybe this incarnation, it'll occur to you again that maybe I was doing something. Um, somebody came back. One of the most poignant ones that ever happened was somebody came back and he'd been, he'd been quite active a decade ago, maybe. And he, he didn't look well. And he just said, I tried to remember the last time I was happy. And he said, and that was when I was coming here. So he, he was trying to come back. For some reason, he didn't stick. But it was, oh, it was very poignant. I tried to remember the last time I was happy. So you want to always be just not burning. You want to not just be burning. You want to constantly be replenishing. And so then Master gives us all the different ways. You know, just do this or do this or do this or do this. Master said you have to do one one-hundredth of what he taught. But everybody will do a different one one-hundredth. So he said, that's why I had to teach so much. <laughs> I've gotten very um, 
casual about that in a certain sense. As long as you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you keep freshening and you keep trying and you keep doing it, it, it's not order, it doesn't have to be tidy. I used to think it had to be really tidy. No, it doesn't have to be tidy. You just have to keep just stumbling forward. We're like soldiers just trying to get across a battlefield with the bullets of delusion. And we, don't ha we can be wounded. It's no problem. <laughs> just keep going. That's all that matters. Like Master said, 15 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, om at the chakras, whatever works. That's the uh, science and the art. That's what we want. Well, anything else? Okay, that's it. Can I have somebody's pen? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So we're still hanging out in number 149, and we haven't finished it yet. We're almost finished, but not quite. Does someone have a pen? May I borrow your pen? Oh, Tondo, thank you. <laughs>